Let me invite you this morning to turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is our focal passage for the day. If you're new to the Bible, if you're new to church, uh, this is the part of the weekly gathering where we open up the Bible and I teach a small section and uh, try to make application by the Holy Spirit into your life uh, as to what the text says and as to how we might respond to it. Uh, This week we're in the book of Acts, and if you're new to the Bible, um, it is uh, in the New Testament portion. There are uh, 66 total books in the Bible. The Bible is not one book. It's a library of 66 books. There are how many in the Old Testament? 39. Very good. And if you're good at math or you don't have it memorized, how many are left in the New Testament? That's right, 27 books of the New Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament, uh, where the focal point and the climax and the center point is the ministry and the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we find that primarily recorded in four books called Gospels, and they are... Very good. This is such a smart church. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, immediately following those four books called the Gospels that focus on the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Immediately after that is a book called Acts. Why is it called Acts? It's uh, typically got the name from the idea of the Acts of the Apostles who followed, after Jesus ascended into heaven, the apostles and the work of the Holy Spirit in growing the church. So today we're going to look at Acts chapter 9, verses 31 through 43. And in this passage, I want you to see that God builds His church through individuals encountering Jesus Christ. An individual encounters Jesus Christ, and God builds His church one person at a time, one salvation at a time, one person at a time. The glory of God in saving sinners, that was last week through Saul, where God is glorified in the display of mercy and grace, extreme grace towards Saul, who was the chief enemy of the church, persecuting the church, trying to destroy the church, dragging off men and women, taking them bound and putting them in prison, confiscating property, um, asking people to be murdered who believe in Jesus. Saul was the chief persecutor of the church. And Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 30, describe how God arrested him on his way to arrest believers in Damascus and how he experienced conversion and then immediately began to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. Amazing passage. Uh, And so today is the aftermath of that in a transition way. I want you to see um, overall the the purpose of the book of Acts. If you're looking for what does this whole book mean, Um, it is the expansion of the church from a small room. Remember in the upper room, there's 120 people who um, Jesus says, wait here. And in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then I want you to go and I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I want you to be my witnesses to the fact that um, I am no longer dead, but I am alive and that I have been resurrected. And so the Acts 
um, book describes the movement from Jerusalem to the end of the book, Acts 28. You've got Paul, um, who has shared the gospel and planted churches all over North Africa and the Middle East and Europe. That entire Roman Empire has access to the gospel through churches that have been planted and people who have been converted. It's an amazing thing that in these, uh, this 25-year period from Jesus' death and resurrection to the end of this, uh, Christianity has exploded, the church has grown. Um, in this section that we're focusing on today, though, we're seeing the removal of the gospel and the church from its Jerusalem-centered focus. Um, out into the outer area, right? Uh, I think I have a map graphic here for you just to kind of help explain that. You see that, Zach? Yeah, there we go. Go to the other one. In, in Acts 1 through 7, you can see here the focal point for the church in those chapters all centered around the temple and all centered around the apostles and the work that Jesus was doing in and around the Jerusalem area. But with the persecution of Stephen in, in Acts chapter 7 and the stoning of Stephen at the end of Acts chapter 7, in Acts chapter 8, we see the scattering. So go to that next image there. We see the scattering um, where people went and faithfully proclaimed the gospel in Samaria. Uh, you remember Philip went down to this desert road down here and the gospel was proclaimed to Ethiopia and to the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, we also see that Samaria and Galilee, Saul on his way to the Decapolis and to Damascus, way bigger than just this Jerusalem focus. Now the church is expanding all over, um, all over Israel. And eventually we know it's going to continue to spread. The center of Christianity in two chapters will be Antioch, and that will be the movement through which Paul goes on three missionary journeys. All right, pretty good overview of Acts. If you're uh, looking at the handle on that, let's get back into our text here. And, and you can leave that map up, I think. It's okay. Um, but some interesting features of this particular passage that we're in today, verses 31 through 43, and into chapter 10. I just want to highlight five interesting features before we get into the text. Because I kind of want you to notice these things. There could be more, but these are just noteworthy, and I may draw some conclusions later. Each section focuses on just one person, right? There's a man named Enos. There's a woman named Dorcas. If you're looking for baby names, right? Dorcas means antelope or gazelle. Um, I don't know what her parents hoped for with, uh, with Dorcas, but um, then there's the emphasis on Simon the Tanner, and then there's the emphasis on Cornelius. It's just an interesting feature of these few chapters. Uh, Saul before that. Uh, the second interesting feature, from the work of Jesus in the life of one person, dozens or even hundreds or even thousands of lives are changed by the gospel. You think about Saul's conversion and the number of thousands and thousands, maybe even millions of people who experience the gospel and salvation through Saul. You think about um, Enos, the passage we're about to read, Dorcas. You think about uh, Cornelius. This is a consistency throughout, a uh, consistent feature throughout this section is that the work of Jesus in the life of one person, many more are changed. A third feature. All these events take place in someone's house. 
There's a, there's a focus on Enos's house. There's a focus on Simon the Tanner's house. There's a focus on Dorcas's house. There's a focus on Cornelius's house. And so we see the transition from temple, Jerusalem, religious structure to a more organic house-to-house type ministry. That's a third feature. A fourth feature is... I don't know how to explain this, and I really don't have a good answer for you, other than to say there is some unusual concentration of upward-focused language. What do I mean by that? Well, you're going to notice words like rise, arise, up, looking up. Um, from chapter 8, end of chapter 7 to 8 to 11, the end of 11, there is an unusual amount of upward-focused language. And I don't know if this is supposed to subtly nudge us to think about Jesus, but the word rise, arose, risen, those are prominent words that would help us to think about Jesus as risen from the dead and Jesus as alive. But it's just an interesting feature. As I walked through the text, I noticed it, and I I could spend 10 more minutes on this, frankly, but I'm just not gonna. But it's a weird thing that, like, if you and I were in a conversation and I just kept looking up, you know, and talking about the sky and clouds and upward. And I mean, you might just kind of look up as well. I mean, it would influence you somehow um, rather than if I looked down or I talked about things downward or there's just an unusual concentration of up language. And I don't yet have a conclusion. Maybe smarter people in the room can help me later to figure this out. And then the fifth feature of this passage is that there are numerous transitions from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, from Paul back to Peter, and then it's going to shift back to Paul, uh, from the Jews to the Gentiles. There are a lot of transitions that um, the historian and Dr. Luke, he's recording in this particular passage and section. But here, let's get to the passage. The main point of it is this. God grows his church through encounters with Jesus. That was true then. That's true today. A few weeks ago, we baptized four believers. And God builds his church through individuals encountering Jesus, giving their life to Jesus, and then becoming followers of Jesus and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. That's the main point of the passage. God grows his church through these individual encounters with Jesus, and then it spreads to others. And, and, and by the end of the sermon, I want you to hear that and see that. But I also want you to have some sort of scope and scale for how a city can be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. And I want you to sort of hear this text in your context. Right? You live in Percasy. You live in Sellersville. You live in... Um, Souderton or Telford or Franconia or Quakertown or some other area near here. I want you to kind of localize what if these events happened in my neighborhood or on my street or in my workplace or in my community where I live and work and go to Wawa and all the stuff you do. What if it happened in the restaurants and the people that you interact with on a regular basis? So let me pray and then we'll get into the text. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sufficient, uh, that you have sent it out for the purpose 
to accomplish the purpose for which you uh, have us to hear it and proclaim it today. I thank you that uh, this configuration of people and the circumstances that they're in, it will never again happen. This is a unique moment uh, in each of our lives collectively for us to hear the word under the circumstances that we're in. And so we ask that you would give us ears to hear and the ability to appreciate the moment for which you sent this word and that you might use it in our spiritual formation. Ultimately, that we would come to know you, Jesus. Jesus, and and essentially that we might become more and more like you uh, as we grow in sanctification and Christ-likeness. Use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's look at verse 31. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What multiplied? The church multiplied. All throughout, we've seen believers added to their number, uh, believers added to their number, then disciples are added to their number, and then all through Acts chapters 1 through 9, there are these small summary statements. But now the church is expanding, where you can see that this entire area is saturated with churches, sprinkled with believers, uh, sprinkled with churches, saturated with believers who are now looking for new places to worship and walk together. This could be a summary statement of one, two, maybe even five years from um, Saul's conversion to this period of peace and multiplication. Um, I want you to see this kind of here now because on the heels of what just took place, Saul had been persecuting the church And the church went through a real painful, difficult period. And so I I just want to make a small observation that understand that churches, uh, people of God in our culture go through rhythms and seasons. We just sometimes are really good and the fellowship is sweet and the growth is exploding and and there are people coming to faith in Christ and, and sometimes there are really sweet times within a church. And sometimes there are really difficult and painful and hard things that a church has to go through, whether it's internally or externally. So I just want you to see that and acknowledge that we're not in a static, everything's going to be great and everything's always going to be great. And if there's one thing that um, never changes is that we are always changing and the church is always changing and the circumstances are changing. There is um, a surge in ministry and there's a retreat and there are times of peace and then times of persecution, times of trials and difficulty, times of abundance and plenty. And just like what Paul said in Philippians 4, 11 and 12, I have learned the mo'io, right? I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, right? Paul knows the secret. And the secret in all those changing and fluctuating circumstances um, is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus is sufficient to carry you individually through seasons, and Jesus is sufficient to carry His church through seasons. I want you to see that, and I want you just to acknowledge it there. Uh, I also want you to see that, um, that, the, that these are large regions, the church is exploding, disciples are being made, the gospel is being shared, and so the church is expanding into this incredibly large area, and that's not even half of the maps that we'll see in Acts. You may even have a map in the back of your Bible, um, not now, later, like look through there and just see how the map expands until you get to Paul's third missionary journey and you see the incredible influence of the gospel in these first 30 years of the church. 
it multiplied. Let's look at verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, where? Peter went here and there among all those churches. In Acts 7 or Acts 8, we see Peter and John going to Samaria to authenticate the gospel message and the work that was being done through Philip and the preaching of the gospel in Samaria. We see him going through the churches in, the, in Galilee and the Decapolis. We see Peter going here and there among those churches. He's traveling to as many as he can. And so that gives us some time frame in this one to five year period, possibly on this time scale. Um, after major persecution and Paul's conversion, there is peace. And so Paul, I mean, Peter is going to visit all of these. And at one point he goes to visit the saints at Lydda. Now this is the first time that we, um, he was in Jerusalem and he's visiting all these places. He goes to Lydda and this was the regional Roman governing center. This is an important feature of the whole book of Acts. Paul will go to regional population centers. Uh, This area, Lydda, uh, near the coastline of the Mediterranean, was a regional Roman um, governing city. So it was a very uh, important city. It was like going to a capital of of an area. And so Peter goes there to check on the saints. This is the first time the word saints is used for followers. It's not a new word. It's all over the Old Testament, um, this word saints. They're not yet called Christians. That happens in chapter 11. They've been called followers of the way. There are all kinds of, they just don't have a language yet to describe this incredible movement of Jesus. So they're applying different adjectives to believers, but saints is one of them. It means faithful ones or holy ones. And just a side note, today, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a saint how many of you um, introduce yourself as Saint so-and-so? Anybody? You feel like a saint? Nah, probably not. Right? I mean, you, you probably think, not me, I'm not a saint, right? Because we have this idea of a saint as being somehow, um, you know, Catholicized, and I don't even know if that's a word, but like made into some figure that we pray to that has some sort of divine potential or something. But that's not how the New Testament uses the word saint. Saints just means that you're called out from the world and you've been bought by the blood of Jesus and that he has transferred you, Colossians says, from the domain of darkness into his light. And so you are a saint. Whether you feel like it or not, God declares over you that you are a holy one, that you are his, that you are children of God by adoption and through the blood of Jesus. That's a neat title if you want to add that to your email, right? Saint so-and-so. Um, that you can apply that biblically, that's right. Uh, verse 33, um, in this town of Lydda, it says there he found a, name, a man named Enos uh, who was bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Enos, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. All right, so here we have a guy named Enos who was paralyzed, bedridden for eight years. Um, and in this particular condition, I, I, I don't know for a fact, and I don't um, want to import something to the text that's not apparent in the text. I, I, that's eisegesis, when you bring an outside thought and you force it on a text. Exegesis is when you take an observation from the text, and you, um, you bring it out of the text. So we want to do exegesis, not eisegesis, right? Um, but I don't want to import an idea here, but, but what would it be like to be bedridden and paralyzed for eight years? 
We don't know about his condition. We don't know if he was healthy before and had an accident or if it was some sort of a, a, a virus. But in some way, something halted this man's life to the point where he was isolated to a single mat, to a single bed on the, on the floor, completely dependent on others to bring him food, to bathe him, to uh, take care of his bed sores, and to, to watch after him. I can imagine that in that position, a person might uh, struggle with depression, or fear, or anxiety, or loneliness, or a feeling of uh, being a burden to other people who have to come and look after them. I can't imagine all the mental difficulties that come with this man, Enos. And I also can't imagine that, that his life during this time of paralysis, in the world's eyes, was extremely useful and productive. And I'm not trying to bag on Enos here. I, mean, I don't want to say he was a useless person. But I just can't imagine that the productivity and the contribution to community and to society before was matched during this time of paralysis. I think that's a special note that we can see here because Peter comes in and he says, Enos, Jesus Christ heals you. Meaning that Jesus notices the least of these. That Jesus doesn't go after the most prominent, the most popular, the most productive, the the, the, the ones that in our society we might target and say, oh, if she became a believer, what a force for the gospel, right? We might choose somebody different, but God in His wisdom and in His mercy and in and, and the glorification of sinners, God chooses to save those that he, uh, that he loves. And this guy, Enos, who was paralyzed and bedridden, Peter comes in and says, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter makes sure that Jesus is the focal point. He makes sure that Jesus, who was dead and then resurrected, that, that his resurrection life has application, that Jesus is meeting this person, Enos. And Peter made sure that Enos and everyone who heard the story knew that Jesus was the source of the power and the one who heals. We don't have any healing power. You don't have any healing power. There's nothing you can do for healing other than what God does through Jesus Christ, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did the healing. He tells him, rise up and make your bed. I asked a lot, what does this mean? Jesus would often say that to a person that he healed, get up, make up your bed, and walk away. How many of you make up your bed every day? Uh, not very hands. A few hands, a few hands. I don't know, maybe five years ago, I started making the bed. I think Jesus, Jesus, she's kind of G, Julie, not Jesus. I think Julie shared a statistic with me sometime that said like, your room looks like 80% cleaner when you just make your bed. It occupies a large amount of space in your room. And so if you want to walk in and just see a cleaner room, just make your bed. And so all the years of stimuli finally made its way in. And, and so I just made it my goal that when I woke up, my routine would be I would get up and I would make the bed. We don't have a lot of throw pillows, so it's not real complicated, but we just, I just make the bed. But that's not what Peter means here, I don't think. I think he means you've been occupied, I mean, you've been limited to this space. This has been your life. Get up and put it away. 
what you were used to, your old rhythms, your old routines, your old habits, your old life, your old lack of independence and dependence, get up, roll it up, and put it away. Put it in the closet. Get rid of this um, life that you used to live. That, that is what a lot of the commentaries uh, kind of help us to see that he might have meant that. Immediately he rose, uh, which is typical of all the miracles during the time of Jesus' life. Um, there is complete and immediate healing. It says, as a result, all of the residents of Lydda and Sharon heard the gospel. What does that mean? All of them? I mean, it says all of them. I don't know if that's hyperbole. I don't know if that means every individual within or, you know, this particular region. All of them heard the gospel. Um, and responded to it, or if it just means that so many, such a majority of people looked at Enos and said, man, if, if, if Jesus Christ heals you, then I'm, it's worth me hearing this message that Peter is proclaiming. It could be like Acts 3, when Peter and John heal the blind, I mean the beggar at the temple gate beautiful, and he jumps up and a crowd gathers because this guy that they recognized was now healed. It could be along those lines. But what is true is that the majority of an entire region is saved. I had breakfast last week with Greg Gregoire, and as we often um, do when he and I talk, we talk about revivals and awakenings, and we, we talked about the revival of Evan Roberts in Wales in 1904. I think I brought this up a few weeks ago. In 1904, um, Evan Roberts, a young man, um, was... Um, prompted by the Holy Spirit through a long series of events to stand up and um, he asked the pastor if he could have a message at the end of the service and he said, no, you can come tonight and if anybody wants to stay afterward, then you can have it. And so a handful of people showed up and, um, and he said, these four points were the basis of his message. Confess all known sin, put away any questionable habit, confess Jesus publicly and obey the Holy Spirit promptly. A handful of people responded, and he continued to preach that same message during the week. And by the end of the first week, 60 people had repented of their sins in these uh, long, extended services. And Roberts began to tour different churches in, the, in, in Wales. The movement began to gather real force, and within a year, over 100,000 converts joined the church in that area. What are the lasting effects of a community that... Here's the gospel and responds. What is the lasting effects? Well, for him in Wales, crime rates dropped anywhere that he preached. Uh, judges were no longer employed because they had no cases to preside over. Uh, policemen made no arrests for decades in some of these communities. And, and they had nothing to do, um, so they started these quartets. <laughs> And if you needed the police, you would ask them to come and sing at your family reunion or your wedding or your, that's what the police were good for and negotiating traffic. But there were literally no arrests for decades in some of these communities where Evan Roberts preached. Pubs, bars, hotels, uh, um, all over the country of Wales reported major losses in trade. Um, 
Mines, I said this a few weeks ago, mines shut down because the miners stopped kicking the mules and the horses and using foul language and the horses didn't know how to respond. They were, wait, wait, this, we used to go when you said that word and now you don't say that word so we don't know what to do. And so it had a real shutdown in uh, mining operations. And, and Greg brought up to me um, at breakfast this week that years later, sociologists who studied the Wales revival within decades pronounced it a failure because only 80% of those who converted were still walking with the Lord 20, 30, 40, 50 years later. Can you imagine if 80% retention of people who made a proclamation of faith in the gospel continued? That's an incredible number where sociologists would say it's not 100%. We would say that's incredible. That's the impact of a community experiencing the gospel and turning to the Lord. Um, Let's move on to verse 36. We're going to another town. Uh, You can see it on the map here, circled in red. If Lydda is um, just to the left of Judea, uh, Joppa is just a little bit northwest from there. And, And in verse 36, we see that there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas which defined means antelope or gazelle. I already said that. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose, there's that word again, and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. I just want to make this small point. It's not an insignificant point that she was a generous and caring and giving person. And I think that's significant in a couple of ways. Maybe this is how my mind works, but... I mean, when she died, they were urgently wanting her to live again. And frankly, as a guy who does funerals, as a part of my job, that's not always the case. I mean, imagine if you lived a self-absorbed, selfish life that you were always taking and never giving, that you were not contributing to society or to anybody, that upon your death, you don't have a group of people who are urging for your healing and resurrection. I mean, that's a sobering point. A point of self-evaluation. Am I making such an impact of serving people and loving people well that if I were to die, they would beg God to resurrect me? I mean, that's the case here. She made such an impact, such an impact of unselfishness and kindness and love that that her friends uh, begged Peter to come and heal her. What if she was a crabby, selfish person and nobody wanted to see her alive again? I mean, that's not too far from reality for some of us, right? I mean, I'm not pointing at anybody, but I mean, you know, it could be. Um, Verse 40, Peter put them all outside. This kind of reminds us of 2 Kings and Elisha. Uh, This is a similar Old Testament overtones when someone gets healed. Jesus did this at times. He put them all outside. He knelt down and he prayed. Turning to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. 
And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. So there's that formula again. One person experiences Jesus Christ, has this encounter, and many people believe and turn to the Lord. Next week, we're going to talk about Peter staying with Simon the tanner. And I just don't want the irony to slip us that a tanner is a guy who is constantly, ceremonially unclean because of his exposure to dead animal bodies. Here's a guy who is unclean. And then Peter has this crazy vision of rise, kill, and eat. And he says, never, Lord, I would never be around anything unclean. And, and then the Lord says, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. And so all of that um, helps us kind of see that God is about to shake Peter's worldview to the core. But that's next week. And I can only preach one message today. Um, so let me say these two things in conclusion that might apply to us. Number one, go after the one person. In this passage, we repeatedly see the work of Jesus in one person, um, and that one person, through that one person's encounter with Jesus, hundreds of lives are changed. It reminds us of Luke 15, right? The parables of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, uh, the parable of the lost son, that Jesus, um, God would be so... um, passionate to see one person saved, that he would leave the 99 in the field and go after the one who was lost. And, and when he finds the one that's lost, he puts it on his shoulders and he joyfully comes home. And then he throws a party. And the, the summary statement after all three of those parables is that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. There is this focal point on one that we see in this text. And I think this goes against our tendencies and our fascinations in our culture, especially American Christian culture from the last 20 or 30 um, years, is that we have some unhealthy fascination with crowds. And that God's not at work unless 10,000 people are showing up. Or this church can't be doing anything fruitful or productive if only 70 people are here or 20 people are here. And I just want to correct that. that oftentimes Jesus would go across the sea and heal the demoniac. Just a mission trip for one. Or going into different areas and uh, Acts chapter 4, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, they show up at just the time when just one woman comes out and Jesus has one interaction with one person and she goes and tells the whole village and the whole village comes out, he stays with them for two or three days and they all believe because of the testimony of one. I've told the story of Leanne Patkos uh, so many times. She's the director of the women's um, clinic, uh, North Care in Lansdale. And, and maybe 10 years ago, she um, invited me to a coffee so she could um, describe the ministry. And so I sat down with her. And, and I mean, I'll just be honest. I get pitched by ministry leaders a lot. And so I wasn't necessarily engaged a lot. Um, but then the more she talked and the more I began to do some math in my mind of how many people she has influenced away from abortion and toward um, uh, ha- you know, having children and how many individual lives are literally physically saved. And I began to do the math and I began to count up from the time that she started the ministry until the time of that luncheon. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of literal people that wouldn't have been alive had it not been for her. And I just, I said, tell me how you got saved. How did the Lord save you and bring you into this? And she, you've heard me tell this story before. It's one of my favorite stories in the world. 
a whole mission team from somewhere in the middle of the States. 40 people or so came to do a backyard Bible club in her neighborhood, and they all raised all the money, and they got on the vans, and they made all the hotel arrangements, and they, they did all the work that goes into mission team preparation. And when they got to that particular backyard Bible club in that neighborhood, a little seven-year-old Leanne was the only one who came. And so they just waited. <laughs> 10 more minutes, nobody else comes. 20 more minutes, nobody else comes. And so finally she said, I remember them kind of huddling up with their back to me and trying to determine, should we even do this? I mean, we've got this whole skit planned and this whole Bible study and this whole craft. And should we even do this? And she said they turned around and they did the entire backyard Bible club for her. And the next day they did it again and she was the only one. And the third day they did it again she was the only one. And the fourth day she gave her life to Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? That God would move 40 teens and adults and raise all the money just to save one person who would have this incredible influence. You, you think about Acts 8 and Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and just one guy on the desert road and reading Isaiah 53. Listen, I want you to glorify God in the salvation of one sinner as he intervenes through Jesus Christ in the life of one person and many are saved. Now, here, here might be some application for you. Who's the one person that you might be neglecting? Are you open to share the gospel with just one person? Is there some person that God has repeatedly put on your heart and you don't even, maybe you don't even pray for them anymore, but, but listen, don't, despise the one in hopes for many. You may have six people showing up at your Bible study. Listen, don't, don't get infatuated with numbers. Understand the kingdom works when God intervenes in one life. And a second point of application. So I want you to see how salvation can ignite and change a town, a city, a region for the glory of God and for the gospel. I wanted you at the beginning of the message, I said I want you to see the scope and scale for how a city can be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to apply that to your context. What would it look like for you if this happened in Souderton on your street? What would it happen for you if this happened in Percocet uh, or wherever you get coffee? Or what would happen if one person got saved and it, it triggered a series of events where many people through the example of a transformed life through Jesus, giving glory to Jesus, many people got saved. What literal bars would close in, in, our, in our towns? What addictions would be completely eradicated? I mean, years ago, we had massive heroin and drug addiction uh, through one particular doctor in Satterton who overprescribed to the tune of 50,000 pills. Um, we had one heroin addict in the early days at Ridgeline that always stole from the orphan jar. We had a donation jar, and, and he would come in and break in at night, steal. And we can trace his addiction as a 17-year-old young man to a doctor in Souderton who overprescribed pills. A 75-year-old doctor who's serving the rest of his life in prison with his 55-year-old son who helped manage that. Addiction happens as a real cause. But if Jesus and the gospel came and made itself real, and he made himself known, and people were saved, we might see in this area a, de a deliverance from addiction and lives who are 
basically bound to a mat like Enos, like his life was not productive, not helpful, just really limited to this mat. What if addicts in our area heard the gospel, responded to Jesus, and their life was transformed? What if marriages were restored? What if gambling, uh, the wasting of money on gambling over sports or lottery tickets, what if that money was used for the kingdom instead of uh, poor tax for people who are greedy to get wealthy? Uh, Listen, that might be meddling too much. You might not like me for making that statement, but I think gambling is a horrible stewardship of money. And I know plenty of people who don't give to the church, but will buy 50 scratch-offs. Willing to invest money to make themselves rich without benefiting the gospel proclamation. I think that if some of these things came, if Jesus came and made himself known and people were uh, experiencing the gospel, Divorces would be uncommon, forgiveness and healing in families, relationships, crime rates would rapidly decrease, explosion in missions and generosity, anxiety, worry, debilitating fear, I think it would be gone. I think Jesus Christ would heal that. I want you to see that because I want it to ignite a vision for you as you walk through, drive through, pray through your neighborhoods. Father, thank you for your word today. Uh, Thank you for the way in which the impact of Jesus and his resurrection is not just something we read about in stories in the Bible, but has actual impact in our life today. Uh, You can just look around the room and see individuals who were saved that gave their life to Jesus and are now making a dramatic impact in the kingdom. I think about the guy that uh, got ordained. Friday, Paul, that uh, was cleaning his bathroom and heard a a podcast sermon from Riverside and and got saved right there in his bathroom. And um, as a result of that, now is ordained and leading in church ministry, proclaiming the gospel in his workplace. I just thank you for Leanne Patkos and uh, for the Morgans and for um, all the people that you have saved over the years in the life of this church that are now having an impact for the kingdom. And I pray that we would respond appropriately to the direction that your Holy Spirit is prompting us today. Maybe it's to go out and share the gospel with one person. Maybe it is to pray through our communities. Maybe it is to put away any questionable habit, to repent and confess any known sin. Maybe it is to confess Jesus publicly. Uh, Maybe it's to obey the Holy Spirit promptly that outline that Evan Roberts preached in Wales. Whatever it is that you would have us to do, I pray that we would be a people who respond. In Jesus' name, amen.